Corbynism the Postmortem is kindly sponsored by the Media Masters podcast, a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, hosted by Paul Blanchard. You can tune in anytime at mediamasters.fm. And now, here's the show. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. In 2017, British Prime Minister Theresa May, buoyed by a double-digit polling lead, decided to hold a snap election in the hopes of strengthening her Commons majority to ease the passing of her Brexit legislation through Parliament. May ran a woeful and robotic campaign, and Jeremy Corbyn, still riding a wave of popularity among the Labour membership, was able to cobble together enough of an electoral coalition of Leavers and Remainers that would ultimately deny May a majority. Labour still lost the election, but in inflicting a pyrrhic victory on the government, Corbyn had managed to silence the critics that had prophesied his doom, and now looked like they had the potential to be a government in waiting. In the end, however, 2017 represented the high watermark for Corbynism, and his popularity figures began plummeting until he became the least popular opposition leader in the history of British political polling. The prophecies were ultimately proved correct, and in 2019, Labour was handed its worst electoral defeat in 85 years. But why did Labour go backwards after 2017? And what decisions did the Labour leadership make that led to such a historic defeat? Hello, and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem. I'm your host, Oz Katerji, and in this episode, we will be exploring Labour's abysmal performance in the 2019 general election. Joining me on part one of the show is the BBC's regular election polling wizard, the University of Strathclyde's Professor Sir John Curtis. In part two, we are joined by the New Statesman's political editor, Stephen Bush, and Labour councillor and data analyst, Christabel Cooper, who has recently co-authored a report analysing Labour's defeat for the pro-Remain group Europe for the Many. So, without further ado, on to part one. So, John, can you tell me about Labour? Um, Did they win the argument in the election? Well, it depends what you mean by the argument. It depends the argument. It depends also about the argument about what. So, to take the two points, I think the uh, the claim that Labour won the argument is a reference to the relative popularity of the domestic policy platform, and particularly the high-profile um, uh, questions of um, a um, nationalising the utilities, uh, b changing the governance structure of some of the private sector by putting workers on boards and giving them a certain amount of the share capital, and also uh, some of the Labour's policies for for increasing taxation. Those, for the most part, asked about individuals' policies were consistently across a number of polling companies and asked in a variety of ways were proved to be relatively popular. And on average, typically around 50% of people said they were backing most of these ideas and only around 20-25% said they were against. And you could even find quite considerable support for the idea uh, amongst conservative voters. You could also indeed, uh, it was also fairly clear, this was not something that was particularly an anathema to those on the Leave side. So insofar as it's a reference to what some people might regard as the more radical aspects of Labour's domestic policy programme, and certainly 
the aspects that the public were most aware of, um, one could argue that the party adopted a relatively popular line. However, what then is also true is that once you, people were also being asked, well, not just simply, do you like this policy, but also, do you think that's achievable? particularly on those policies that involved extending the role of the state or radically changing public services, there was a tendency for more people to say that they thought they were unachievable than achievable. Whereas when it came to taxation, people said, well, yeah, okay, we know you can increase tax. Um, and then much more broadly, when people were being asked, look, you know, do you think the party uh, more uh, more broadly is able to delivering what it's promising, will it keep its promises? Now, both parties had a problem on this issue, but it's clear that Labour had the bigger problem. And above all, talking about uh, domestic uh, politics, in the end of the day, the public were not convinced that Labour Party were capable of running the economy. So winning the intellectual argument about the merits of policies may be demonstrating that you've got the capability and, and, and instilling people the confidence that you can deliver on that agenda, evidently not. Now, that, of course, however, the domestic agenda is only part about what the election is about. Above all, what the election was about, and certainly the issue that seems to have been primarily important in shaping who voted for whom, was the question of Brexit. And there's very little evidence that the Labour Party won the argument on Brexit uh, throughout, uh, both before the election campaign, but afterwards, people were inclined to say, you know, what? I frankly don't understand where the Labour Party uh, stand on this issue. And of course, in the end, one of the ironies, arguably, of about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership is that although this is somebody who was supposedly a radical politician, willing to stand up for very clear positions, and where one could argue on the domestic agenda he he did, but on the crucial central issue and a question that was going to be settled by the election, viz Brexit, he was the last compromiser standing on an issue, ironically, in which one could argue that standing in the centre was the last place to be. This was an issue where by the time we got to uh, the last six months or so, there was very little centre ground left. And, you know, I think history will probably argue not at the end of the day that Jeremy Corbyn uh, failed his party because he was too extreme, but rather because he was unwilling to uh, take a clear position on a central issue facing the country. Now, it wasn't an easy issue for, part, for, for Labour. I mean, there, there were, undoubtedly it was divisive, but it was also divisive for the Conservatives. And I think you know, at the end of the day, you know, whatever one's views about the merits of Brexit, strategically, once Boris Johnson has got his deal, there was only one place left for, for Labour to go. And that was to say, well, actually, we're in favour of remaining inside the European Union. But arguably, actually, that's a position the party probably needed to have taken the autumn of 2018, because once the Liberal Democrats had begun to eat in the Remain territory. Labour was playing catch-up. They had some success during the election campaign. During the election campaign, they did indeed succeed in squeezing back some of the Remain vote from the Democrats. But despite the continued ambiguity, they made no progress at all in getting back from the Conservatives the voters that they'd lost to them. And somewhere between a quarter and a third of Labour's Leave voters switched to the Conservatives, and they had already decided to, to make that uh, move even before the general election was held. Labour's traditionally seen as a party of the working class. Did Labour lose the working classes? 
Well, yeah, I mean, the Leave vote is disproportionately uh, amongst those who have less than wave educational qualifications, as well as being older voters. They are also uh, people who are disproportionately in uh, working class occupations. And yes, Labour's vote to some degree went down more amongst uh, working class voters than amongst middle class voters. Even sharper, however, and this mimics the position in 2017, it's the Conservative vote going up in working class voters and the Conservatives conversely losing ground amongst middle class voters. That's the, that looks as though it's going to be, it was, was the sharper pattern. But yes, uh, relatively speaking, Labour lost leave voters uh, and as a result it therefore uh, lost people disproportionately working class and the result you know at least in the immediate wake of the 2019 election is that there is basically at least in terms of the simple uh, statistics no relationship now between which occupational class you are in and whether you vote conservative or labor now you can begin to see a difference once you control for people's educational backgrounds. So uh, those who don't have much in the way of educational qualifications who are middle-class jobs were more likely to vote Conservative and less likely to vote Labour than uh, those of the same educational background in routine occupations. So you can see that social class still has some influence once you control for education. But even so, education is clearly now the more important difference. And basically that's because we know from Brexit that Brexit... It's not an issue about social class. It's not a left-right issue. It's an issue that divides those who like social diversity versus those who want a greater degree of social social homogeneity. That's a dimension that's much more related to educational background than it is to social class. Uh, and so, therefore, it's, it's education that at the moment is a structured thing, as well as, of course, above all, age. Age is still, it was in 2017, it is in 2019, the biggest demographic divider. And certainly, if you want to be optimistic for the Labour Party, a fundamental issue potentially facing the Conservative Party is what's it going to do in 10 or 15 years' time when a significant proportion of its voters are no longer with us? Because unless the Conservatives can actually reclaim uh, ground amongst those who are currently middle-aged as well as those who are younger, it's going to suffer a serious electoral problem in 10 or 15 years. What do you think Labour needs to do to win back those seats that it lost to be able to form a majority? Well, um, you have to ask yourself a prior question, which is whether or not the route back to power for Labour necessarily lies in simply trying to regain the ground it lost in 2019. Because bear in mind, you know, the party is now, for example, remarkably popular in London, so while, it, sure, it has gained, lost ground in the Midlands and the North, it's gained ground in London. I think you know, there is a question mark here as to what extent does the Labour Party, as a party that is pro-Remain, pro, uh, relatively relaxed about immigration, um, and wants to pursue an environmental agenda, is actually a party that's promoting a message that's basically going to favour younger people and those uh, with relatively high educational uh, levels of attainment, um, and that therefore it isn't going to find it easy to win back those voters, um, um, uh, or not. Now, in part, the, the decision will be out of its hands. If Brexit continues to be an issue, and if the Conservatives are still commanding the Leave vote, it's going to be very difficult for the Labour Party to win that vote back. If, on the other hand, Brexit isn't so much of an issue, then maybe it can, though I think other issues like climate change will tend to feed into the same division and the same uh, argument. So I think, to come back to you, I think the question that, first of all, Labour has to ask itself 
is what kind of party does it want to be, what uh, principal issue stances does it want to take, and certainly be careful about simply trying to fight the last war. Brexit may not be an issue. Climate change will be. Artificial intelligence might be. That might fundamentally uh, change the character of the labour market in a way that the Labour Party has to decide how it's going to stand. So you're going to have to think forward, A, and B, flexibly, because you won't necessarily know uh, where we're at. Um, but I think, I mean, put it like this. I think one of the lessons of the last three years is that this party has had... Just in, you know, relative to the, the statistical reality of where it's at, it's had a disproportional attachment to its working class vote. Okay, and that has arguably stymied, stymied it in terms of its ability to give leadership on Brexit. And I would certainly say, be a, start from an understanding of where you are now at, and that is, at least in terms of individual voters. You, at the moment, are no longer a working-class party, but you have other strengths. Um, and think about, therefore, uh, uh, and, and A, and B, the issues may have changed, and think in the light of that about where to go. And I think certainly the implication of that is that certainly, um, assuming we have to go, you have to try and uh, have a strategy that's simply directed the voters you've lost is wrong, equally, I think, incorrect, is assuming that you've got attack back towards the centre and refighting the battles of the 1980s is necessarily the way to achieve progress. On both these issues, you now need to think seriously about where the par what the party now is and what are the issues it's going to face and then work out where you want to go. Uh, don't just simply try to react to the, the current defeat. That was Sir John Curtis in part one, and I'd just like to take this moment to thank our sponsors over at the Media Masters podcast. Media Masters is a series of in-depth interviews with some of the biggest names in the media industry, and you can find them over at mediamasters.fm. And now, for part two. Hello Stephen, hello Christabel, welcome to the show. That was Sir John Curtis there. What did you make of that, Christabel? Um, I would... Never dare to disagree with Sir John Curtis on polling. And in fact, you know, I, I, I agree with pretty much everything he said. I suppose the point that our report that we published made was about the fact that the working class is changing. Um, and certainly if you use the definitions um, that Curtis is using uh, when he spoke... Yes, absolutely. We are losing a proportion of the working class vote. I think the interesting thing, though, is that... We've got a number of people who are middle class in the sense that they are reasonably well off, they may be graduates, but are actually experiencing quite a lot of financial insecurity. And those are the people that Labour are picking up. So I think it's, a, it's, it's too simplistic to say that we are no longer the party of the working class. I think you have to be clear about how you are defining the working class. Stephen. Yeah, I think cause one of the things I think is interesting about Labour's post-mortem of its defeat as a kind of, you know, quasi-sympathetic outsider uh, is um, is that uh, this, this almost kind of implicit, implicit argument somehow that it is more virtuous if the Labour Party lost the votes of um, working class people, uh, whereas... Actually, yeah, looking at, at the report and Christopher did, did you look at I th the thing that I felt was really striking was, uh, yes, the Conservatives now are a party where you have some seats with very high pay and some seats with very low pay. But 
what they all have in common is fairly low housing costs and therefore a large level of disposable income. Now, I think some people in the Labour Party seem to use that as an excuse to go like, oh, well, maybe somehow it wasn't a defeat and it didn't matter because um, actually, you know, the Labour Party just lost votes among, you know, boomers who were comfortably off. But the flip side is I think some of the arguments you have from some of the leadership candidates seem to be based around this idea that um, the Labour Party lost kind of, yeah, lost sort of an authentic working class and then the way to get those voters back is to be more like itself, um, which I'm dubious about for other reasons. And I think this, I think I completely agree with, um, I completely agree with, with John Curtis's assessment that Labour needs to fundamentally start by going, okay, well, where, what is our current electoral position and how can we build out from that rather than sort of engaging in some slightly strange fantasies about the nature of the voters it lost and the nature of the coalition it might seek to to build to take power. But I think broadly, I don't think there's very much in that uh, one could disagree with. I guess the open argument about the Corbyn era in terms of the one, the argument discussion, right, is... I suppose my interpretation of what uh, the kind of, you know, what Jeremy Corbyn means and what kind of Corbynites mean by it is that in 2015 you had a Conservative Party that was rhetorically and in policy terms committed to uh, a agenda of, of fairly sharp public spending cuts. And in 2019 you have a Conservative Party that is committed rhetorically to the end of austerity and as far as health, education and the police is committed to quite large spending increases. Of course, the open question is to what extent is that about Corbyn and to what extent is it about this thing called Brexit that splits the kind of what you might call the pro-austerity coalition in two. Um, I think it's probably more to do with, with that and also probably more to do with the fact that it becomes easier to oppose public spending cuts the longer they go on. Because, you know, if you think about the condition of one's own street in 2015, it looks a lot a lot scrappier now in in 2020 uh and so of course it, i think it's partly that it becomes harder to defend austerity the longer than it goes on uh christabel your your report was rather fascinating i'll make sure there's a link in the uh, description for people to check it out can you talk to me about what you identified as the key reasons labor lost the election in 2019 so our report was designed to be forward-looking. Now, I mean, we obviously know that Jeremy Corbyn's leadership was a huge factor in the election, but we didn't choose to concentrate on that, I think primarily because whatever else happens by the next election, Jeremy Corbyn will not be leading the Labour Party, so that that won't be so much of an issue. The report generally focuses on some of the longer-term changes in the Labour vote that um, Sir John Curtis um, mentioned, um, and what we did was we divided, we looked at the different types of seats, um, the ones that Labour have consistently held since 2015, the ones that we have gained um, either in 2017 or 2019, the consistently held Tory seats and the ones that they've gained since 2015. And we've identified um, some, some patterns within them. The, the Labour held seats, you know, a lot of them are poor. It is simply not true to say that Labour is now this kind of party that is only representing affluent people. Um, something like 19 out of the 20 constituencies with the highest child poverty rates are still held by Labour. Um, on the other hand, the seats that we are gaining are in slightly more affluent areas. So the ones that we famously picked up in 2017, like Canterbury and Kensington. 
um, are quite affluent areas. On the other hand, they do have high numbers of those, if I can go back to use a Ed Milibandism, the precariat of people who actually have quite low disposable income despite having quite high wages, largely because of things like housing costs and potentially the costs of childcare for people with young families. And so those are the ones that we are picking up because I think Labour's, Labour's, you know, Labour's message of change, of, um, of, you know, things like the Green New Deal, even, dare I say it, the free broadband does appeal to those sorts of people. However, you look at the seats that the Tories won, one of the things that we really identified was there's some very low house prices in those areas. And yet, actually, you've got a fair amount of people that are owning their houses outright or in social housing. So these are people who are actually... You know, in terms of their housing costs, they either have no or very little housing costs. And even though wages in those areas are low, the disposable income that some of these people might have might actually be higher than that of middle class people in the more affluent areas that that Labour is Labour is picking up. So these are, they tend to be older, these are very white areas, these are people who are generally more socially conservative and you know, simply just did not respond. They 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 disliked uh, what they perceived as, I think, Labour's ultra-liberalism under Jeremy Corbyn and eventually, you know, re- rejected it altogether. But, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that you then look at the consistently held Tory seats and these are very different to the ones that they've just picked up. These are affluent seats. These have got high house prices. These are these look very very different. These are you know there's the the, the your your retired stockbroker in Surrey if you want a kind of very crude caricature. Um, so these are very different to the ones that they've picked up, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the Tories try to hold those coalitions of seats together. Um, and we suggest that that there probably will be what we term pork barrel spending, targeted spending in those seats, which won't we we think fundamentally transform their economic fortunes, but may. Will, will, will remains to be seen, just do enough to hold on to them. That's that's what we've got to fight against. That's what we've got to be sort of pointing out, that these changes are superficial and that, that, they, that they are not fundamentally going to change the character of some of these quite economically left-behind areas. Stephen, can you talk me through the reasons that you think Labour lost the 2019 election? So I think the Labour Party lost uh, the 2019 election for uh, four reasons. I'm not going to list them in any particularly uh, order of particular importance in terms of their sort of electoral and or sort of moral weight, right? But I'm just going to do them as kind of an A, B, C, D. A was anti-Semitism, which primarily, in terms of its uh, effect on voters as a whole, was about the perception of competence. Uh, the, um, the, the sort of, you know, the moral and existential problem posed by Jeremy Corbyn's failure to deal with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was one that hugely occupied a very small number of people on the left in terms of the total number of people in the country, caused a great deal of people a lot of personal uh, pain. But in terms of the voters it moved, it primarily, I think, was an issue of people were like, why hadn't why hasn't he kicked these people out? It, 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 it contributed to an idea of Labour as divided and incompetent. Um, however... Anti-Semitism was also directly important because of the second thing which affected uh, Labour's electoral performance in 2019, which was Brexit, right? Now, one of the things it's easy to forget is that in February of last year, so almost exactly a year from uh, from when we're recording this today, the Labour Party was 
ahead in most of the polls and its political strength was based on the fact that it was able to have a pro-Brexit position while holding on to the support of most Remainers. Now, why did that change? It didn't change because, you know, Vince Cable bought a brilliant hat or because, you know, someone someone did something particularly clever outside of the Labour Party. The move of Remainers from the Labour Party can be directly traced in the polls. And seeing as the polls got... Um, got both the result itself, but having talked to people in all political parties, they got the trend throughout the uh, election campaign uh, pretty pretty correct. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I think everyone agrees is that you know, the postal votes were a lot worse for Labour, which is exactly what you'd expect given when they were sent off and Labour's later performance in the polls compared to their result on the day in, in many of those constituencies. Um, what caused Remainers to move away from the, from the, from the Labour Party were seven people from the Labour Party standing up and saying, we're leaving the Labour Party because of anti-Semitism and because of Brexit. And I kind of think that if the Labour Party had not uh, failed to tackle anti-Semitism in its, in its ranks, you would not have had that split away. And I think without that signal event, because the thing that, you know, very politically engaged people, I felt, would all, would, when we'd get together and discuss the Labour Party, we would accept that we knew that you know, you'd meet lots of people who said they wanted to stay in the EU who were nonetheless voting for the Labour Party. And, and none of us, including lots of people right at the top of the Labour Party, could come up with an entirely satisfactory explanation. We all came up with sort of lots of kind of hypotheses. And then what we all kind of had to accept, well, whatever you might think about it as an electoral, as from a kind of strategic, moral, ideological perspective, their Brexit strategy was working incredibly effectively. So, that, so yeah, the failure on Amsterdam led to the second thing, which was Brexit... Once they lost the support of Remainers, uh, the question became not can they win the 2019 election, but could they survive it? And ultimately, the only way they could survive the 2019 election, yeah, from that point after the locals and Euros, was to get Remain voters back, to move to a uh, and to a pro-Remain position. A pro-Remain position, just by definition, was always going to be a core vote position for them. Uh, we know that there are a group of Remainers who were not going to vote for Corbyn's economic policy. We know. Broadly, there's another group of Remainers who think the referendum results should be upheld. We know that there are a group of Remainers who uh, opposed Corbyn for other reasons. All of that meant that once they moved to a Remain position, election was over. On top of all of that, you had the added problem of problem C, which was Corbyn himself, his deep unpopularity among basically everyone, which is one of the reasons why I think some of the um, some one of the difficulties with analysing the 2019 election result is Corbyn's unpopularity with basically everyone makes it such a kind of noisy election, right? This was an election in which the Labour Party lost votes among basically every demographic, every class, every social group in every part of the country. Um, and in many ways, the kind of, yeah, one of, I think one of the, a lot of the weakest arguments that Labour politicians have made in the leadership election have been one in which they have kind of sought to go, oh, maybe there's a macro story in this 2019 election. It's like, well, there is, but it's hard to accurately gauge it because it's overwhelmed by just one man's titanic unpopularity. And then the final thing which speaks to Christopher's report is demographics, right? The story of, you know, support for political parties, not just in this country, but around the democratic world, right, but is in this country broadly expressed by, in 2015, the Labour Party losing Morley and Outward, a seat that it had held in various guises, unbroken for 100 years from its foundation to uh, the defeat of Ed Balls in 2015, but holding on to Exeter, a seat that it had only held for four years in the 20th century, other than when Tony Blair won it in 1997, and obviously Ben Bradshaw won the seat uh, directly as the MP. Now, the problem, and this is basically true about every left-wing party you look at their support and it is losing Morley's and it's gaining Exeter's 
The problem for the British Labour Party is that first-past-the-post means that there is an electoral premium to winning seats like Morley and an electoral cost to becoming a party whose core vote is, is located and is moved by the economy into seats like Exeter, Exeter seats to them which have been Labour held for longer like Manchester Central, far greater rate, rate of poverty than Exeter, but similarly where the economic and demographic trends concentrate that vote in ever fewer numbers of seats. I and mean, we shouldn't forget this is a Labour vote share that is only two points off the 2005 general election result and was many, 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 many seats away from the 2005 election result. And so I think it's that cocktail of four things that defeated Labour in 2019. So one of the arguments I've heard a lot uh, from Jeremy Corbyn's supporters is that Brexit was overwhelmingly the reason why people rejected Labour and actually the reason why they did and the reason why they lost so many seats is because they solidified behind a pro-second referendum position. Do you think that's that's central to it? And do you think that if they hadn't adopted that position, they would have kept as many Remain votes as they did? Absolutely not. Um, I mean, if you look at the polling during 2019, as Stephen says, it starts off uh, reasonably okay uh, at the beginning of January. The Tories and Labour vote head steadily down in tandem towards the European elections, which were disastrous for both of us. Um, I mean, I think uh, the Tories got something like 8% in those elections, which is, you know, when you consider that that's only a few months before they gain an 80-seat majority, that's extraordinary. And of course, what was happening at that point was that they were shedding, we were both shedding huge numbers of votes to parties which had a clearer position on Brexit than either of us did at that particular point. Now, most Tory voters, something like two-thirds, voted Leave, most Labour voters, something like two-thirds again in reverse, voted Remain. We were primarily losing Remainers to the Lib Dems. The, uh, the Conservatives were primarily losing uh, Leavers to the Brexit Party. But what you see happening, the moment that Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, is that they start getting those Leavers back. Suddenly those Leavers start believing that they, the Tories actually will deliver Brexit. And you see, they never, ever lose that lead. As Stephen said, during the actual campaign itself, we started to get those Remainers back. And that was after we had moved explicitly to that second referendum policy. I am certainly, I mean, I'm convinced anecdotally from having knocked on a lot of doors in a Remain area that there is no way we would have got as many Remain voters back as we would have done had we not been able to say, look, this is the only way you're going to get a second referendum. I know you don't, um, you're not particularly enthusiastic about Labour, but this is this is it. I think we would have had a very, very hard time trying to get even as many Remainers back as, as, as we did. In the event, we got most but not all of them back, whereas the Tories were remarkably good at consolidating the Leave vote. And, and interestingly, hanging on to a fair amount of their Remain vote. And when you consider that they had gone for a very hard Brexit option, they had staked their... They'd they, they put a marker down. They were absolutely like, we're not being ambiguous about Brexit here. We are going for hard Brexit. And yet they still managed to hang on to quite a large proportion of their remainers. So I think what's that saying is that actually having a strong position on Brexit doesn't necessarily, you know, you will. And they did lose a, a fair number of them, but just simply not as many as we lost of our levers. And I think, you know, I, 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 there, there are a whole load of other things that were that were going on, but certainly you don't see the pol- polls move when at the time that we say we're going to back a second referendum. 
And yet you, what you do see is the polls start moving during the campaign as we get Remainers back. So I think, you know, I think most Leavers had made the decision to, to not to vote Labour a long time before we formalised that second referendum policy. And they were doing so for reasons other than Labour not backing or backing a second referendum. Interestingly, Jeremy Corbyn was particularly unpopular amongst Labour leavers. And yet, you know, he, despite him personally actually having a very ambiguous position on Brexit, he said he would stay neutral in a referendum. That doesn't seem to have gained him any popularity with those Leave voters. And I and I strongly suspect that had the party remained ambiguous, I we may have got some of them back, but nowhere near as many as I think we would have got back in in Remain voters who, 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 who did come back to the party eventually. I think we would have been looking at a probably, you know, we could have been looking at a 1997-style um, result in reverse had we continued to, to, to leak Remainers in the way that we were doing. Stephen, you said the 2017 position of being a pro-Brexit party but keeping hold of your Remainers was, uh, you know, it was working for Labour. Did Labour have an alternative choice after the European elections? No, I mean, by the European elections, the they had, you know, and I'm, I, yeah, I, I sort of have to say with all candour, I do not understand quite why so many people insisted for quite so long that Labour's position in, on Brexit was ambiguous in, in 2017. It, it felt to me that that was an excuse for Remainers to vote for a Labour party they wanted to support for other reasons. Their position was they wanted Brexit to happen. For other reasons to do with, yeah, I think a bro- what you kind of describe as a broader social liberal agenda, they kind of were coded Remain to, yeah, that, you know, in the same way that people broadly see, say, a tote bag as a pro-Remain object, even though, of course, a tote bag does not have any political positioning itself. It's just a bag. Um, but I think once you get into 2019, uh, once those people leave the Labour Party, once they lose Remain voters, well... You've got to retain one of those two groups. Remain voters were the were the bigger group. Even I mean, this thing is yeah. I you know travelled the country sort of extensively during elections. Obviously, it's a big part of my job. You know, with all all of the the political parties, and it was very clear to me that even in seats which they lost, they would have lost by more uh, if they had had a an, a pro leave position by that point. I don't really understand why Remainers went from being willing to tolerate a Labour pro-Brexit position to being un- unwilling to do so, uh, but but they did. Um, and once they had, then the Labour Party had to chase after those votes. Or I mean, I think it would have been worse than I said. I genuinely think than if they had, it would have been an extinction level event had they not moved to that position. If, if I can just... I, for- I think part of what happened was that a second referendum started to become a real possibility between 2017 and 2019. I mean, you know, I'll lay my cards down on the table as a very ardent Remainer. I think in 2017, I had pretty much accepted that Brexit was going to happen. And I was on the bandwagon of trying to campaign for a a softer Brexit as possible. I think what what started to happen was that because of because May just was was utterly failing to get any deal through Parliament, um, it, uh, you know, a second referendum actually started to look like a reasonably sensible solution to the crisis that 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 we were in. And I think the more that Remainer expectations grew that we could possibly overturn this, I think that 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 to me was the thing that that felt changed and the Labour Party did not 
adapt to that those changing expectations from remainers and move and move quickly enough to that second referendum position Stephen did the Tory party outmaneuver Nigel Farage's Brexit party in the elections and did Labour also do the same with the Liberal Democrats by falling behind a second referendum uh, campaign so did, did those two events, you know, them both clearing up their Brexit positions, did that mean that the European election result was never going to play out in the general election? So I think the difference between the European election results and indeed the local elections that results that that month and the general election in, in December was actually primarily was radically different for both of the kind of two parties of the Brexit polls. For Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, right, most people, whether they are Remainers or Leavers, have not read the withdrawal agreement did not read Boris Johnson's new withdrawal agreement, will not read the negotiating mandate between the two sides. What what we do, and people do this in politics, they do this when they're buying a new settee, they do it when they're buying somewhere to stay, you know, when they're renting somewhere to stay on holiday, they find a brand, a brand or a person who they trust, be it Martin Lewis or Jeremy Corbyn or Caroline Lucas or Boris Johnson or Nigel, and they go, okay, well, what's their opinion on where the best place to stay in Bordeaux is? Therefore, I will book this place and has been recommended by the Telegraph travel section. Now, crucially, the thing about Theresa May's withdrawal agreement is that if you were a pro-leave voter, the politicians you looked at to give you a guide as to whether or not it was good or not, in in, in order of kind of their recognisability and sort of trustworthiness among leave voters, were Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And they all said, this is terrible. But once Boris Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party, well, he is the most trusted, most Levy politician. So his deal must be Brexit because Boris Johnson has said so and Jacob Rees-Mogg has said so. And that woman who you, the average voter doesn't know, but the Home Secretary has said so. Yeah, you know, All of those other people who exist in the public mind as levers, other than Nigel Farage, have said, well, look, this is the real Brexit. And his coalition was, I think, always going to collapse the second that the Conservative Party's levers coalesced around some form of Brexit. For the Liberal Democrats, right, essentially, there are lots of reasons why they did so well in the Euros, one of which was Labour's own position, you know, the fact that they benefit by being the viable route, the viable vote for people who wanted to vote for Change UK, but, you know, wanted, but, you know, were being targeted by a competent political force. Um, but the other thing is, in the Euros, and indeed in the locals that year, the, the big threat for the Liberal Democrats is always what happens if the party I really loathe gets in? And I think one of the significant things in the Euros was not just those votes that the Lib Dems got from Labour, but the votes they got from the Tories. Now, the thing I heard in Winchester, um, in Guildford, uh, in the other uh, in the other Liberal Democrat seats that I went to, the, the names of which currently escape me, is yes, there was some at the margins opposition to uh, Joe Swinson. But the central problem the Liberal Democrats had in 2019 was the fact that voters believe, I was going to say rightly or wrongly, but actually, like, let, yeah, real talk, entirely correctly, voters believe that the only way that, that the Lib Dems would stop Brexit would be have been by through a deal with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and and they did not want Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street, so they did not vote Liberal Democrat. And, you know, the popularity of the Lib Dem leader is always a pretty weak guide to whether or not they gain seats. They are so dependent on the identity of the Labour leader. They can, you know, in many ways, yeah, one Lib Dem, yeah, they said, you know, Joe Swinson was a bit like our umbrella, right? The, the Lib Dem leader is always your umbrella if the Labour leader is bad. And they said, it didn't help that our umbrella didn't work. They said, but also the fact we were in a, force 10 storm probably was a bigger factor and it wasn't so much than 
because Labour moving on to that second referendum territory should have squeezed the Lib Dems, but that should have squeezed them in, you know, where in the places where it did, i.e. the West Midlands. But if you look at, say, the Labour vote in Isha and Walton, where Dominic Raab held on by, what, 3,000 votes, they did squeeze the Labour vote into nothing. In St Ives, the Labour vote is smaller than it has has be, was in 2010, a wave year for the Liberal Democrats. The central issue in all of those places was a bunch of Tory Remainers going, actually, no, I think I prefer Brexit to Corbyn. So in the last few years, uh, foreign policy, anti-Semitism, these issues were my biggest focus when criticising the Labour leadership. Um, a lot of people have said, you know, voters on the doorstep don't really care about these issues. But when it comes to, say, national security and incidents like the Salisbury Skripal poisoning, um, do you think that had an impact on the polls? Um, yes, I, I think it almost certainly did. Um, and I think that that's, you know, what 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 we say in our in our report is, is that, you know, Labour does need to gain back many of those socially conservative voters in those towns for for you know the reasons that you know Stevens explained about demographics they they are strategically more important to us much as i you know you know it just has to be said um under the current electoral system um and i think i think things like that do have do have an impact on on those voters um i think and I think that that's that's something that a future, you know, our, our report, our report again is, is it wasn't focused around Corbyn, it wasn't focused around criticising him. It was just it was. But what we would be saying is that any future leader probably does need to avoid um, making some of those mistakes, and that they do need to be somebody who is not perhaps with the same comes from the same tradition of Corbyn in terms of being perceived as that kind of ultra-liberal, um, somewhat unpatriotic, if I can say that, um, tradition of, of the Labour Party. I think that that was just an unhelpful, you know, it was, it was the branding in people's minds was very much that Corbyn is that. And I'm not sure anything was going to, him singing the national anthem or wearing a poppy was probably never going to change that once it had become ingrained as the image that people had of Jeremy Corbyn. Stephen, do you think the Skripal incident had an impact on the polling at all? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the polling in 2018, it did. There was a a clear recessional in Labour's polling. Um, yeah, if you, kind of, if you think about sort of the post-2017 election phase, that period when Jeremy Corbyn was Albie, not because he was spectacularly popular, but was the most popular active politician in the UK. And then he kind of pootles along, looking like he's on a trajectory to enter Downing Street, not to win a majority, but to enter Downing Street whenever the election's held. Salisbury happens, and his reaction to it does cause a move away of Leave voters, to use an imprecise term, Leave voters away from the Labour Party, and then he's level-pegging. And then, because of various things that happened to the Conservative Party, by the end of the year, even though the Labour vote hasn't gone up, the Conservative vote has gone down, so once again he looks to be in a position to enter Downing Street. And I think what Scribble did is that it, the average person in this country essentially agrees with what you might, if I was to give you the over the sort of precy of what Jeremy Corbyn thinks about foreign policy, they broadly agree with that, right? They do think uh, we should avoid foreign entanglements basically whenever they do think they have made us less safe and are our cause are our approximate cause of the terror attacks on British streets. However, their 
their sort of underlying philosophy that leads them to those conclusions is quite different from Jeremy Corbyn's. And I think what the Salisbury incident showed is it became an illustration to them that they were like, okay, yeah, then basically broadly, a bunch of quite isolationist British voters realised that they didn't actually have that much in common with Jeremy Corbyn other than isolationism. Um, and Scripple kind of became, you know, it illustrated that and it meant that sort of attack lines from the Conservatives that just hadn't landed in 2017. Uh, and as people hadn't bought or hadn't accepted, just became tangible. So I think it was probably, yeah, that, if I were to add something to my list of reasons, probably Scripples would be the the number one uh, on top of the other things. We wouldn't be able to run this show without the support of our kind sponsors over at the Media Masters podcast, your one-stop shop for interviews with the biggest names dominating the media industry today. You can find them over at mediamasters.fm. And now, on with the show. I see a lot of people credit Jeremy Corbyn with changing the messaging around austerity. You know, Miliband had the the stigma of being austerity light and Jeremy Corbyn came along. But there was also another contingent and it's very much the, as you were talking about his ideology, the stop the war. You know, he wasn't associated with Iraq and in fact he was associated with opposing Iraq. So it was those two factors that came together that made him seem like a break with new Labour, as it were. Do you think that Jeremy Corbyn himself was the sort of architect of the anti-austerity message that Labour would become? Or do you think that another politician probably would have filled those shoes anyway? So, no, I mean, I think actually the, there are lots and lots of reasons why the 2015 Labour leadership election played out the way it did. But actually, he was fundamentally the only candidate running on a, a sort of thoroughgoing anti-austerity ticket. Um, I think, yeah, the interesting thing is if you look at what Ed Miliband tried to do, right, he did apologise for the Iraq war, which clearly did gain some voters for the Labour Party back. Um, He never felt able to repudiate the spending. What Jeremy Corbyn did as Labour leader is he apologised for the spending in the run-up to the financial crisis, uh, albeit using a form, you know, albeit again using an argument that, I don't think many voters, you know, kind of think, oh, well, the problem was was just that Labour was insufficiently uh, belligerent towards the banks. But broadly, actually, his uh, his critique of the last Labour government, again, sort of precied down to its essence, is one which is shared by most of the voters who Labour lost between between 2001 and 2010. People didn't like the Iraq war. They think Labour spent... Well, I guess the difference is, is that Labour people, voters Labour lost think Labour spent recklessly because it spent too much and, was sufficient, and wasn't sufficiently robust towards the banks. Jeremy Corbyn thinks Labour spent recklessly because it was based on uh, over-dependence and sort of being enthralled to the city of London. But actually, to be honest, it doesn't really matter. The point was he had a sincere apology that broadly attuned with what Labour, what the voters Labour had lost thought was. So I think in terms of fixing those problems of Labour's past, he was, um, you know, kind of, you know, almost perfectly optimised to do all of that. Not least because the scale of his mandate and the fact he had no support in the PLP anyway meant he didn't have to do this kind of like, oh, God, I've apologised for it. But my finance ministers won't apologise for it. And my home secretary voted for Iraq. And I don't know what to do about any of these things. He could just go, I'm sorry, we had nothing to do with it. Um, Yeah, so I think he was pretty important to that bit. In your report, there's a part where you talk about Labour's economic messaging and Labour's economic policies and how you say that Labour can save its more sort of 
radical, socially progressive economic policies uh, with, a, with a change in messaging. My question to you, isn't that essentially what Blair did by sort of triangulating to more of the centre uh, to try and introduce more, more spending into public services? Um, yes, he won three elections. Um, I, 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 any, all politicians, all successful politicians have got to assemble a wide coalition of voters who don't, at the extremes, necessarily have a huge amount in common with each other. So you do have to do a certain amount of making sure that your messaging is appealing to both ends of those of those spectrums. I mean, that's just a... That's that's nothing to do with Tony Blair. That's just the attribute of a successful politician. I mean, I think, you know, what, one one of the things that we say in in the report is that I think a lot on the a lot of people on the left interpreted Brexit in particular as a cry for change for for radical change, and I think that that was slightly, well, quite 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 substantially misinterpreted in a lot of cases. The message of Brexit was very much, yes, we want things to change, we want things to go back. I mean, the whole message was take back control and with the implication that there was a time when we had control. Whereas Labour's, uh, the 2019 manifesto was very much this kind of, we are going to absolutely radically transform this country and this economy into something new. And again, that has appealed to younger people. It has pe- appealed to perhaps graduates who are more confident of navigating those those changing waters. But it had limited appeal to some of the older, whiter, working class, non graduate voters in in those towns. However, what was really interesting was, of course, whenever you said to people, um, "Oh, your manifesto is very extreme," they would immediately come back with, "Oh, but." But wait a minute, these things are mainstream in continental Europe. And to some extent, that that's true. I mean, the levels of public spending that Labour were proposing, I believe, would have put us mid-table in terms of EU EU government spending. So they, a lot of them, you know, nationalisation of utilities and, and, and railways is, is, is pretty, is pretty um, normal in continental Europe. But we never kind of... We, we never resolved that contradiction. My view would be that actually we should have gone more with the, look, actually some of these policies are pretty reasonable. They are not this radical, uh, new, um, uncertain thing that nobody has ever tried before. Actually, some of them are, are, are pretty mainstream. They are, they are a reasonable solution to some of the problems that we have uh, in Britain at the moment, and I, you know, I do my my, my personal view, and and it, and and it appears it's Keir Starmer's view as as well, is that you know the the 2019 manifesto was was obviously massively overcrowded. It you know it had a and, and it appears that that was that was partly to distract attention away from from Brexit, and so of course as a whole, it it was perceived very much as this. You know, as as a very radical and 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 to some people frightening change. I think if we took, you know, Sir John Curtis made the point that 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 the many of the individual policies were in fact reasonably popular, but altogether as a package with lots and lots of sort of slightly random things. You know, the free broadband, which you know may appeal to everyone under kind of thirty five, but certainly probably isn't going to appeal to to to, to many of the. Of, of the older voters that, that we need back. These these were kind of distractions, I think. We need something that's much more targeted, much more focused, that we can argue re- that are reasonable 
solutions to quite fundamental problems that we have in the UK. So Stephen, similar sort of question. I mean, I heard the manifesto was amazing. The voters loved every second of it, every page of it. Um, you know, it just it just didn't sell because of the media and because of Brexit. Is that your position on it? I mean, no. My, I mean, you know, I'm not a Labour Party member. I didn't vote for the Labour Party in 2017 or 2019. But, um, you know, uh, but... My essential, rather big confession there, Stephen. I, I, I literally, I it comes as no surprise to me. This <laughs> weird power than the word NS has in the title, and I've literally written that like four times. I've written it in the, <laughs> I, I've written it in the statement. I've said it on the new statement podcast, and yet every time people say it, they're like, "Wow!" It's just like, yeah. When I when I talked about, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's never mind. I just, I just find it astonishing, like the number of times I've said, "Well, look, the anti-Semitism is personally a deal breaker yeah. for me personally." What did people think I meant by deal breaker? No, what yeah. then? I do a little cry before I voted Labour. No, I meant it was a deal breaker. Um, but, you know, the central difference, I think, is the 2017 manifesto uh, was much more effective at telling a policy story, right? You could broadly guess without having an announcement what Labour's policy on any given issue was and what the funding mechanism would be, which was broadly, as you know, someone who worked in that office, you know, Labour will take money from, you know, from, you know, the 1% and give something to everybody. Now, you can have a perfectly good sort of wonkish argument about whether or not that was the best use of targeted funds and I think on welfare in particular the 2017 manifesto uh, was you know significantly outclassed by the SNP manifesto the Liberal Democrat manifesto the Green Party manifesto and the Plaid Cymru manifesto basically it was significantly worst in class as far as 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 welfare and, and, and left-wing values were concerned and the 2019 manifesto was was not much better although it did have some very useful fixes to, to universal credit contained in in it but right the central thing is people don't read manifestos right they 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 kind of absorb what they say about the kind of general policy smell and i think actually the most effective period of corbynism yeah that 2018 conference the r town video which terrified the conservative party at the time in which every policy was broadly we are reaching out to you know if you're yeah if your town's had a hard time we're the party for you and they just had no coherence by the end of the, the the thing. I think free broadband's become a somewhat unnecessary scapegoat among Labour Party people. The reason why it cut through is the BBC push notification. It wasn't that free broadband was any more of a any more symptomatic of the problem than the sixty eight billion pounds for WASPy that was just found in the last few days and just. It just made everything else look unreal. I think the thing is, it wasn't so much that people thought, wow, these policies are radical. It was like, wow, these policies aren't going to happen. Actually, in terms of the ability of a government to do a lot of stuff in one term, they mostly weren't going to happen, right? This was a proposal to nationalise as many things as John Major and Margaret Thatcher managed combined over 18 years, in five years, while negotiating Brexit, while um, reducing emissions to, to, to zero by 2030, right? It was just fundamentally not a believable document. I just think if, if a document can't be believed, of course it can't be bought. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, whether or not the 2017 manifesto did so well because of what happened with Theresa May or not, 2019 manifesto was plainly a disaster. Well, I think, you know, John, John Curtis at, at the beginning of this of this piece sort of made made the key point here is that is that when you poll these policies individually, a lot of them are very popular or, or at least moderately popular um, and I think that there are a lot of people within the party who simply see that polling and say well therefore it's it's all right and don't necessarily look at the impact that the document as a whole had um, 
there is i mean we've 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 talked about it earlier the did did they win did 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 we win the argument and you know the 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 fact that even the tory party now are accepting that greater government intervention is is needed that higher public spending is needed that you know this is this is taken therefore as a vindication of of labor's arguments and 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 labor's manifesto but i think you know that clearly clearly the country since 2015 has moved and and indeed you know partly partly down to corbyn i guess um towards a more um a, 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 to an anti austerity to an anti-austerity um, place. Um, but that document in particular, I think, was not a helpful... It, just because it just had so much stuff in it and, and, as, and it just came across as, as, as not, a, not a credible document. I don't think that that document in itself was a helpful expression of, I think, something that is going on more broadly, which is that move towards people generally being more accepting of government intervention and of the need for higher government spending. Stephen, do you think the sort of Labour manifesto, to use a to use a sort of metaphor, was like an email telling you you've won a million pounds from a Nigerian prince? Do you think it sort of had that impact on people? Thought, well, this is great, but it's clearly not true. Yeah, I think people broadly didn't believe it, and I think in some ways the popularity of it is a bit like someone saying, you know, I can't believe that this person said no to a date with me because they told <laughs> me that they love burgers and I asked them to go out to Five Guys, right? Like, actually, the the policy platform is such a teeny tiny part of why one it's how relevant is any of this stuff to people right a lot of it is popular but really low salience uh you know the two a lot of it is popular but confirms things people say about about the labor brand that they already distrust right it's a bit like 2005 conservative manifesto hugely popular agenda as far as you know law and order uh was concerned right essentially where the majority of the country was but when people heard Michael Howard and Oliver Letwin and, you know, all of those kind of pre-Cameron conservatives talking about law and order, they were like, oh, those wicked Tories are planning to put us all in a, you know, in a tower surrounded by a volcano somewhere. Because that, that was the state of the Tory brand. And, you know, what David Cameron had to do, despite not junking very many of those policies, was by adding on things like, I care about the environment, I'm not, you know... A, you know, I'm, I'm socially authoritarian, not socially conservative, that sort of stuff... Uh, was able to build out from that. And fundamentally, Labour's big problem was its policies weren't believed, and when they were believed, they merely confirmed people's worst fears about Labour as a political party. Do you think nationalisation was as popular as uh, Corbyn's wing of the Labour Party want people to believe? I, I, I think it probably is. It's, it, you know, especially when you see the state of the railways in particular, I think that there is a... There does seem to be a general um, consensus that privatisation has not worked. Now, you know, I I agree that that, that sort of nationalising everything within five years is is not probably is not something that is achievable. Um, but I think the broad direction is is something that is 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 somewhere where the public is is going at the moment. I I, I do think that there has been a sea change since 2015. In part, I think because of the change of the personnel at the top of the Labour, oh, sorry, the top of the Tory Party, um, Cameron and Osborne were very very slick proponents of um, of uh, you know if you want to. Pr- 
to put it better, a, a, a pro-austerity agenda, a, a, a much smaller state, a, a, a getting the budget deficit down. I mean, I've said this you know, to, to, to numerous people, like who ever talks about the budget deficit anymore? Almost nobody mentions it. And so you've had a change at the top of the Tory party, first to May, who I think her instincts were actually to go for greater government intervention and, and, and higher public spending, but never had the mandate to do it. And of course, Philip Hammond as Chancellor massively opposed it. And now you've got Boris with his, you know, 80 seat majority, he's got the mandate to do, you know, to to do what what he likes, really. And I think that he, you know, the fact that he is, you know, he is talking about higher public spending. He is, I mean, he's not saying, he's not talking about nationalisation, obviously, because um, that would mean, you know, criticising his predecessors, his predecessors' policies of, of, of privatising everything. But I do think that there is a sea change in the attitudes of British people towards the role of government that is reflected in some of Labour's policies. But it's just, you know, it, it's just the way that we have presented some of them that are overreach. And I think the belief that they just, it, it's just doing all of this is not feasible that has ultimately undone us. So Stephen, it seems a lot of the issues that have come up over the previous podcast as well is that it seems to be an issue of messaging and of competence. Now, as Christabel just mentioned, you know, Cameron and Osborne managed to sell themselves and gain a mandate for austerity, essentially. And this time round, Boris Johnson has managed to gain himself a mandate for what we would have perceived several years ago to be a very hard Brexit um, and essentially won a popularity contest against Jeremy Corbyn. Many of his supporters thought, well, Boris Johnson's surely the best candidate to go up against us because, you know, of our perceptions of him. How much of Labour's performance issues were down to its media strategy, its messaging and its competence coming from the leadership's office? I mean, I think those are ultimately those are all integral, right? Not least because, you know, Everything that an organisation that you are the the leader of does is ultimately a reflection on your leadership, whether it's weak leadership because you're unable to make your writ run throughout all of it, which was often a problem under Ed Miliband, whether it's active failures of leadership because of things that you actively fail to, to do, poor strategy didn't set because of people you hire, right? Whatever sort of conception you want to bring, the, the core vector in this election was leadership. I actually think that people in the Labour Party were right to think that Boris Johnson was probably the candidate who maximised their chances of power. Uh, he did rep- He did force a lot of Liberal Democrat voters back to the Labour fold in a way that, in my view, Sajid Javid would not have done, Dominic Raab would not have done. Uh, so I think, you know, I think it's important. Yeah, I want, there are many things I found depressing about the last five years of Labour politics, not, not least the fact that I, to be honest, did always think that it would end with a defeat like the 2019 one. But the most depressing thing, actually, uh, is the number of conversations I have in which we all seem to have forgotten that the 2010 defeat was a disaster. The 2015 defeat was a disaster, right? There's not this story of, like, unparalleled left-wing success in this country uh, until Jeremy Corbyn turned up. There was epochal defeat for the Liberal Democrats in 2015, epochal defeat for the Labour Party in 2010, the two parties of the progressive left both on their backs. Uh, And I think, yeah, it's important to remember that, yes, the 2019 defeat was a very bad defeat that you can lay many of the problems at Corbyn's door. But I continue to be depressed at the number of people who do seem to think that, what, this is great because now the left will go back merely to losing as badly as it did in 2015? 
So on that note, Stephen, what do you think uh, Corbynism got right? And what do you think Labour needs to do to win votes now, to win an election? Not just to, you know, stymie the flow of progressive voters leaving the party, but how do they become the government? I think what Corbynism got right isn't you fundamentally have to start uh, with a diagnosis of your core principles and seek to win power from them. That was the thing that Tony Blair did incredibly well. And the thing that by 2015, it kind of felt that his latter day successes seemed to think what you needed to do is you just use your principles like fuel. Um, now, in some ways, Corbyn did that in a way which was slightly insincere, right? You know, the trouble with austerity is the police have a tough time. But that was absolutely the correct political approach. You start with your principles, you start with where the voters are, and you work out how you can move the, the voters towards you through presenting your policies in the right way, in some cases changing your policies. I mean, as he, Jeremy Corbyn did not, for example, go into the 2017 or 2019 elections campaigning for basic rate to go up, which was something he said he wanted to do even in his 2015 Labour leadership bid. Or, uh, or nuclear disarmament. Or nuclear or disarmament, exactly. Leaving right. NATO. Leaving the NATO, right. Yeah. There, are a hu- there are a huge swathe of issues than Jeremy Corbyn triangulated and moved moved on. And I think, yeah, fundamentally, the kind of like, yeah, the sort of, you start with your principles and values and you work out how to win power for them rather than kind of ending up in this kind of like oh well you've got to understand Labour has a problem in small towns and there's a critical mass of Labour MPs who I worried if I asked them what their trade policy was they'd say oh well you know it's tough in towns like mine well that's not a trade policy guys um, and I think that is the the thing that, that they need to take forward I also think looking across the broader left right actually the Lib Dems are going to have their leadership election soon and one of the arguments for they'll, they'll be having is you know how much should they apologise for the coalition? It's like, well, guys, if if they believe in power sharing and sharing power, some of the time they will have to do that with political parties they don't like. So they need to work out how to win consent for that. And that is fundamentally the, the thing that Corbyn got right, is you have to start with what are the things you want to do in office and how do you win consent for them, rather than, you know, what would you, would you like office and, like, can you come up with some weird chimera of sort of vote Labour and win a microwave that allows you to take office? Because history suggests that doesn't let you take office either. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and I, and I would, I would, I would echo that. I mean, I, 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 I think that the, the lesson that some have taken from this election um, is that, you know, it, it's clear we did lose a load of socially conservative voters. So therefore, now we need to, to to be tough on immigration. Now we need to sort of, and I think you know, it's, it's going back to the Ed Miliband control immigration mark. It's, it's. I think people smell a rat. People realise that the Labour Party is doesn't really believe that, and so I think we can't, you know. And and, and again, you know, the, the the fact that Jeremy Corbyn came across as authentic, whereas clearly Ed Miliband did not, I think was a was was a factor, um, you know. And 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 as, as so many people have said, in in some ways. <laughs> You know the the absolute irony of Jeremy Corbyn, and I, you know, I was I was a delegate at, at the party conference in in um, autumn twenty nineteen, and it was really striking um, how many people were stood up and said, "Oh yes, uh, twenty seventeen was such a success." I mean, you know, the success very strictly in inverted commas because we lost, but still was such a success. Um, because we were authentic, we were we had we had the um, uh, we had the courage of our convictions um, that we didn't um, you know that, that that people could sense that. And then on the single biggest issue that was facing the country, 
we ducked it. We triangulated. We did exactly what all of these people had accused uh, Ed Miliband, had accused New Labour of. We were we were just you know we we had this we had this inauthentic fudge. So I don't think that you know had we not gone to a second referendum policy, had we continued with this sort of like oh well we sort of believe in Brexit a, a bit. Um, you know, that wouldn't have done us any good. And I think that doing that on some other issues that are kind of quite fundamental to the values of the Labour Party would be a mistake. I just think it's it's a question of, you know, the problem in 2019 is we almost, through a whole combination of factors, came up with an offer almost specifically designed to alienate some of those people. And we just need to not do that again. How do you reconcile the fact that, um, you know, Ed Miliband was heavily chastised for his controls on immigration, Mug, but a lot of people who did that chastising sort of seemed to embrace Labour's triangulation on an even further position, further to the right position on immigration when they moved yeah. against freedom of movement. It seems like the idea of being pro-immigration was completely lost as soon as they had the idea of a further left economic government. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with the with and, and there, to be fair, there were people who did point that out at, at at the time that this this was this was massively hypocritical. I think it I think it though goes back to this idea idea that the working class is it's more virtuous for Labour to have working class people voting for it than middle class people. And I think that that in the minds of some people became the ultimate point of the Labour Party. And and therefore, I think because it was perceived that all working class people are anti-immigration, which of course they're not. A lot of them are immigrants or the children of immigrants or live next door to immigrants. But anyway. Or the areas that are yeah, still they voted, are, yeah, immigrants exactly, that still exactly. voted for Labour. Yeah, exactly. Um, but somehow I think this this all got bound up with this, that, that, that Labour voters are only supposed to be certain people. And if these certain people have these attitudes, therefore we must go with them. Um, though, of course, again, it only applied to certain things because we know, you know, for example, on on some other issues that that, that working class people very much disagreed with 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 some of the things that that that, that Corbynism was was advocating. So yes, I, I, I in in a long winded way, yes, yes, I agree with you. I think I think there was a, a certain amount of hypocrisy that went on about that. Stephen, you look like you had something to add on the immigration point. I mean, I think on the immigration point, right? Like ultimately. Actually, the question of which is more left wing, the kind of new Labour approach of free movement within the EU area, but, you know, don't worry, we're going to compensate for it by being pretty horrible to anyone who wants to come here from outside of the EU. We shouldn't forget, essentially, unskilled immigration from outside the EU did basically end in the late noughties under under the last Labour government versus the position uh, laid out in the 2017 manifesto of, well, free movement will end, but there'll be a much greater measure of compassion and humanity towards refugees and people who want to come here from across the world. Which one of those is more left-wing or which one is more liberal? I mean, to be honest, actually, I think it, I think the argument there is completely open. Uh, and I suspect, uh, not I suspect, from the conversations I have with people at the top of the various uh, progressive parties, other than the Greens, I suspect and where a Keir Starmer leadership, a Lisa Nandy leadership, a Ed Davey leadership, a Leila Moran leadership would end up is broadly where the 2017 manifesto is. Because actually, as Vince Cable said when I'm 
in terms of like Labour's ineptitude, I'm astonished that they managed to lose not one but two elections to Vince Cable. And the fact that he had explicitly said, maybe we should accept the referendum result in 2016. And it explicitly said, well, look, guys, free movement isn't the be all and end all in terms of liberal immigration policies. And I'm, I'm sorry, it's just not right. There are there are other vectors. Right. And there is an open question about whether or not us leaving the EU, as upset as I am about it, is an opportunity to win greater consent for family reunion, yeah, allowing people who are waiting to find out what happens to them in Kent to be able to spend money and get jobs as opposed to gradually turning the whole of Kent into a sort of horrible ghost town. Right? There, there is an open argument about whether or not there is an opportunity to have a more overall liberal migration policy than the one that the Labour Party was able to win consent for in the EU. All, all I would say, though, is that I'm not convinced that the people who voted Brexit because of they were anti EU migration are necessarily pro immigration of of people from from places beyond the EU. It seemed that triangulation was essentially giving the Tories a free pass to 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 reshape immigration in their own image, with Labour sort of taking its hands off the wheel. Well, people broadly them. want control, right? Yeah. I, I, actually, yeah, and I. And actually, you know, they want control regardless of, you know, I'm sure we all during the Brexit referendum had conversations with people who looked like us saying, but it's not fair that my grandmother couldn't come for my for my wedding. And yet X, you know, X number of polls, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, like and yes, there's a large chunk of people who are just opposed to immigration full stop. But. Equally, right, those people aren't going to vote for continuing free movement either. I'm, yeah, I'm not necessarily saying I have landed on that position. I've just, I just do get a bit irritated when people sort of kind of suggest as if it's open and shut that the 2017 Labour position on immigration was somehow less progressive than the Liberal Democrat one on immigration. It yeah, kind of, it does have this kind of same cut. It, it annoys me for the same reason when people go, oh, we didn't even use the controls we could have had on migration in the EU membership, whereas basically people saying, if only we'd been a bit more beastly to ethnic minorities, then maybe I would still be able to go on the Erasmus scheme. And it, it just is distasteful. Uh, no, I, I fully agree with that. Um, my final question to you, Stephen, is the EHRC investigation is is looking to conclude at some point this year. Um, the recent revelations about bullying and the party with Kari Murphy involved, it, it looks like the troubles for Labour, you know, are a long way from over still. What's your interpretation of, of what's still to come? Well, I mean, I think it feels so hard to predict because we not only don't know who will win the Labour leadership, but we also don't know, you know, will they be able to get an NEC majority? What will the sort of context be? Because, I mean, you know, as depressing a truth as this is, because it was pretty awful for everyone else, actually, Labour's failure to tackle anti-Semitism under Corbyn is a massive gift to his successor as leader. Uh, you know, ultimately, because, yeah, actually, all they have to do is enact the EHRC's recommendations, most of which will be binding on them anyway, um, expel a bunch of people from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism, and without having moved on any policy issue, they will have moved, right? It, in many ways, actually, I think it's very easy to kind of forget that, as grim as it is, the fact that Labour ended up being investigated by the EHR is a pretty depressing. But if the one person for whom it's actually not terrible for is the next leader of the Labour Party. Um, is that, is that very, true in all cases, though? Um, well, it depends on what, whether or not they mess up the opportunity, doesn't it? But, I, yeah, regardless of... Yeah, the thing is, you can you can reasonably look at 
you know, Becky Long Bailey, who was on the NEC, and go, well, are you really going to actually like grasp his nettle? You can reasonably go, um, yeah, you can reasonably say, okay, well, Keir Starmer's always always talked a very good game on the need for auto exclusion, but is he actually going to be able to get a majority on the NEC for it? And what policy is going to throw overboard to construct that majority? And you go, oh, Lisa Nandy again, like has spoken a very good game on it, but also says she wants to end factionalism and infighting. Well. Sorry, there's there's a trade-off there. But whether or not they take the opportunity doesn't sort of change the fact that, yeah, just as, I mean, to take an opportunity Corbyn failed to seize, right? The allegations about sexual harassment endemic in Westminster. Now, broadly, if Jeremy Corbyn had decided that he was that was going to be his project, because he had no base of support in the PLP, he would have he would have got to a place Theresa May would have been unable to follow. He would have looked very strong, but also. I'm not saying this in a because there are just many more at Labour MPs than there are Corbynites. A serious reaction to bullying and sexual harassment within Westminster would have increased the number of pro-Corbyn people in the parliamentary party. Right? Uh, that was still an opportunity just because he failed to take it. And yeah, bluntly, as grim as it is, the EHRC is a moment for the next Labour leader to demonstrate change that opposition leaders are very rarely given. Uh, so yeah, it's terrible for the rest of us, but it's yeah fantastic if you're the next Labour leader and you don't foul it up. Thank you very much to you both for joining us. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Corbynism, the Postmortem. I'd like to thank my guests, Professor Sir John Curtis, Stephen Bush and Christabel Cooper. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy. This episode was kindly sponsored by the wonderful Media Masters podcast hosted by Paul Blanchard. The show is a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, and you can find out more at mediamasters.fm. Thanks for tuning in.